right, well, good morning, North Boulevard Church family. Those of you here at East Campus, welcome you, and welcome to all of you who are joining us online at any campus, wherever you may be joining from. Uh, joining from. We're really glad that you're with us this morning. I want to jump right into the lesson. So it was on June 23rd of 2018 when a boy named Knight, was his nickname, woke up eager to celebrate his birthday. What he didn't realize is just how long he would have to wait before getting to eat his birthday cake. You see, Knight was a part of a youth soccer team. They were called the Wild Boars. And on the afternoon of his birthday, Knight, along with 12 members of his team, decided that they wanted to go for a hike in a nearby cave. It was a cave they were very familiar with. They had gone to it many times. And so Knight and 12 members of his team, they got on their bikes and they rode through the lush green mountains to the mouth of the cave. They only wanted to be there for about an hour. Besides, Knight had a giant yellow SpongeBob SquarePants birthday cake waiting for him at his parents' house when they got done with the hike. And so they just took with them their flashlights they left their bikes at the edge of the cave and they made their way into the darkness. What they didn't realize is that when they left the light of day and headed into the dark belly of the cave, they would not see the light of day again for another 336 terrifying hours. You see, as they moved deeper into the cave, they entered into some of the narrow tunnels of the cave. And as they walked through the tunnels, they noticed that the water in those tunnels began to rise very quickly. It got up to their ankles and up to their knees and eventually it was up to their waist. And as they realized, before they realized it, the water was rising so fast that they had to move deeper and deeper into the cave simply to save themselves from drowning. You see, they were just a couple weeks away from the monsoon season when the cave is completely inaccessible. But some of the rains had come early to the region. And when the rain falls on the mountain, it only has one place to go. It was heading straight into the tunnels into which the boys were hiking. Well, they were able to move deeper and deeper into the tunnel to save themselves from the rising tide. They eventually found a cleft in the rock of the cave that they were able to maneuver their way up to and save themselves from drowning. But their relief over being saved from drowning quickly turned to terror when they realized that they were two and a half miles from the mouth of the cave. They had no food. They had no communication. They had limited air to breathe. The only water that they had to drink was the water that dripped from the cave rocks above their heads. They were trapped. They were afraid. They were in desperate need of someone to rescue them. Little did they know that as they were escaping the rising tides inside the cave, the wheels were already in motion for their rescue to take place. Parents started realizing that their kids were missing and they knew that they had gone to the cave. And so within a few hours, what started off as a one hour hike with a birthday boy and his friends turned into an international rescue mission that would unite a nation, captivate 
the world and bring over 10,000 rescue volunteers from across the globe to the mouth of the Tam Luang Cave in northern Thailand. It would take the rescue workers 10 days to even locate the boys. The cave was so vast and the water was so deep that they had to have expert Navy SEAL divers to locate the boys. And so after 10 days, two British Navy SEAL divers were finally able to find the boys. Every single one of them was alive. But the hard part was not going to be finding the boys. The hard part was going to be getting them out. You see, not only had the water completely filled the tunnel that would lead to their escape, and not only were the monsoon rains about to arrive, making the cave completely inaccessible, but none of the boys knew how to swim. They were going to have to be rescued, and they couldn't save themselves. And so on July 8th, 2018, 18 expert Navy SEAL divers from across the world went into the cave to begin the rescue mission. The boys had uh, fancy oxygen masks that they wore. They were heavily sedated because of the fear that would surely shock them if they had to go through this on their own. And each diver had a kid attached to him in what looks like a giant gray taco, <laughs> just a big stretcher that the, the child was rolled into. And over the course of three days, every single boy was rescued by the grace of God and the heroism of those divers. When the boys made it to the mouth of the cave, they later said that they thought they would have to ride their bicycles home. <laughs> they didn't realize how big of a deal their story had become. The entire world was waiting for them on the other side of the cave. And after a few weeks of recovering in a hospital, Knight was finally able to go home and celebrate his belated birthday. The reason why I tell this story and the reason why we still tell the story of the miraculous rescue of these 13 boys is because it's a complete rescue story. And don't get me wrong, it would have been an amazing feat for these divers to simply find the boys. It would have been an amazing act of selflessness and heroism for these divers to simply go into the cave and suffer with the boys, to die with the boys, or to bring out their lifeless bodies. But the reason why we tell this story, why it's a compelling story, and the reason why it's a complete rescue story is because not only were the divers able to go in and get them, but the divers were able to get them out. And what I want to tell you this morning is that in the resurrection, we find out that the Christian story, the story of the Bible, is a complete rescue story. Because not only did Jesus on the cross go in to get us, but Jesus in his resurrection has gotten us out. That not only in the gospel do we learn that Jesus died for our sins, but that on Sunday morning, Jesus takes away the last enemy that separates us from God. The last thing that stood in the way of the life that God desired for you to live, Jesus Christ defeats that enemy on Sunday morning when he rises from the dead. And so the reason why we can tell this story the biblical story, and not only say that it's my story, but say that it is the story that every single person should anchor their life to is because it is a complete rescue story. Because when Jesus Christ raised, was raised from the dead, 
God made him king of the universe. And God gave you and me a hope beyond the grave. So I want us to look at this morning three ways that the resurrection rescues you. Three ways that the resurrection completes your rescue. First, the resurrection rescues you from a meaningless story. The resurrection rescues you from a meaningless life. When I was in college, there was a hashtag that was very popular. It was the hashtag YOLO. And if you don't know what hashtags are, just think of it as an acronym. YOLO stood for you only live once. Anybody remember the, the YOLO days, the YOLO hashtag, right? And the point of the YOLO hashtag, it basically, basically became a philosophical justification for procrastination. The way that YOLO worked, at least when I was in college, is, you know, imagine it's a Friday night and I'm in my dorm uh, studying Greek vocab cards, completely hypothetically, and a friend walks into my dorm and he says, hey, you should stop studying and we should go play Frisbee and get some frozen yogurt, which was the only thing to do in Searcy, Arkansas on a Friday night, by the way. And so he would come in and he would say, hey, we should go do this. Stop studying. We should go do something fun. And if I said, ah, I don't know, I need to study, the way he could try to persuade me was by saying, come on, man, YOLO. You only live once. The implication being that if you only live once, you need to take advantage of every moment that you have to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. That if you only live once, if there's no hope beyond the grave, then what are we doing here? We just need to enjoy our lives and do everything to make them as comfortable as possible. Because if you only live once, then life is kind of meaningless. And so let's find our meaning in something like pleasure or excitement. Well, believe it or not, YOLO theology had actually crept its way into the Corinthian church. YOLO theology actually shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, only they didn't call it, obviously, YOLO theology. They called it Epicureanism. That there was a group of people in the Corinthian church who were teaching that there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. There was a group of Christians who were telling other Christians there's no reason to believe in the resurrection. And while this may seem like a preposterous idea for you and me today as Christians, for other Christians to be saying that there is no resurrection, it made complete sense within the first century Greco-Roman world. You see, the desire for a typical pagan living in the first century, the desire for a typical Greek or Roman person was not that at the end of their life, their, their bodies will be resurrected. Who would want to come back to the material world? Right? Who would want for their body to be resurrected? The desire was not that someone, a God or someone else, would resurrect their body. The desire was rather that their soul would be liberated from their body. See, thanks to the influence of Plato and others, the body is a prison and the material world is evil. We don't want the resurrection of our body. We want to be able to escape from our bodies and escape from the material world. And so they were telling people, there's no resurrection from the dead. Another example of this comes in Acts chapter 17. You remember in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is speaking to the graybeards in Athens? And they're able to follow him a little bit until he gets to one point. And what was that one point? 
until he started talking about the resurrection of the dead. At that point, they began to sneer at him because no one believes in the resurrection. Who would want that? What set Christianity apart is that we believe that God will not just allow us to escape from the world, but God will actually work to redeem the world. You see, in Christian theology, the created world is not evil. That's what we saw at the very beginning of this series. In Christian theology, the created world is good. There's nothing wrong with having a body. What we need is not for God to allow us to escape from our broken bodies. We need God to redeem, to heal, to resurrect the good bodies that he's given us. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to tell this group of people who's saying there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. He says, you guys need to realize the implications of what you're saying. Because if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then there is no reason to tell this story. The only reason, hear me carefully, the only reason why the Christian story can be the story, the only true story, is because Jesus was raised from the dead. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we are wasting our time. Paul tells us as much in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 17. He says four things, four consequences, if we are to believe that Jesus was not raised from the dead. He says, first of all, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. If Christ has not been raised, then you're praying to a dead Savior. If Christ has not been raised, then you're following a dead king. Secondly, if Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sins. I mean, it's great that Jesus died on the cross for us. But if Christ has not been raised, then he went into the cave to get us, but he was unable to get us out. If Christ has not been raised, then we're still in our sins. Then he says, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If Christ has not been raised, then every person you love who has passed, they're simply gone. There's no coming back once you go to the other side, if Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Because if Christ has not been raised, we're wasting our time. If Christ has not been raised, we should all be fishing right now. Because there's no reason to believe in a dead Christ. But if Christ has been raised, and we would say as Christians, since Christ has been raised, then he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And since Christ has been raised, his story is meaningful. It is the only story that matters, and it can change your life story into a meaningful story as well. In fact, one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection is how dramatically the belief in the resurrection changed the lives of the early followers of Jesus. One of the greatest evidences for the historicity of the resurrection, the event that happened on Sunday morning when Christ raised from the dead, is how the lives of the early disciples went from being meaningless and mediocre to being meaningful and miraculous. That these early disciples went from living meaningless lives to living some of the most amazing lives ever that completely changed the course of history. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there's a couple of people in particular that the resurrected Christ appeared to. That not only do we believe in the resurrection because the Bible tells it, but because we have eyewitness testimony of people who saw the resurrected Christ and their lives were never the same. He mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5, he also appeared to Peter. You remember Peter? Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times before he was crucified. How does Peter go from denying that he even knows Jesus to 30 years later being crucified upside down because he's so convinced that Jesus is the Christ? He mentions the 12. You remember the 12, those early followers of Jesus? That when Jesus was crucified, they had abandoned him. That all of the male followers of Jesus, except for one and perhaps another, they abandoned Jesus at his time of need. The only disciples who were at the foot of the cross when Christ was crucified is some of the women. They were faithful enough to be at the cross, but these 12 abandoned him. And we find out in John 20 that they locked themselves in the room for the weekend, afraid of what would happen if their leader had just been crucified. How, do these, how does this group of cowards go from being some of the most courageous men that we read about in history? How does this group of incompetent Galilean fishermen and others go from being this fearful group that locked themselves in a room to suddenly going out of the street corners and proclaiming the resurrected Christ? Because almost every single one of these guys is eventually going to be persecuted or martyred because of their belief in the resurrected Christ. He then mentions James, the half-brother of Jesus. You remember James? In Mark chapter 3, we're told that the family of Jesus believed that he was crazy. That Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters thought that he was a lunatic. How does James, the brother of Jesus... Go from believing that his brother is a lunatic to go to believing that he is his Lord. And as Andy Stanley has famously, famously said, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? But Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to James and his life went from being a meaningless story to being a meaningful story. And in fact, we're told that James was so convinced that his brother has been raised from the dead that 20 to 30 years later, he would be pushed off the pinnacle of the temple and clubbed to death by the religious leaders because he refused to renounce his faith in the resurrected Christ. Lastly, he mentions Paul himself, that Jesus appeared to Paul. And Paul went from being a persecuted, a persecutor of Christianity to being one of the persecuted. And Paul says, the reason why our stories changed so dramatically the reason why the resurrected Christ redeems our stories is because we realize that if God had raised him from the dead, then as Peter says in Acts 2, God has made him both Lord and Christ. If God, if God raised Jesus from the dead, then his story is the only story that matters. And if God has raised Jesus from the dead, then your story matters too. Because there's hope for you beyond the grave. Secondly, the resurrected Christ saves you, rescues you from your worry about tomorrow. It's great for us to talk about this story of resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago, but how does this story affect my life today? How does the resurrected Christ bring hope into my tomorrow? 
How can I live life with confidence knowing that the resurrected Christ hasn't taken all the bad things away? So I am a worst case scenario thinker. Do we have any worst case scenario thinkers out there this morning? They're not likely to raise their hands because they're afraid of what might happen if they raise their hands. And what it means that I'm a worst case scenario thinker, uh, it doesn't mean that my fear paralyzes me from living my life. I do lots of fun and adventurous things, but it means that I'm always aware of how things can go wrong. I have kind of learned to expect that things are gonna go wrong. And so I just kind of am aware of that as I live my life. A silly example of this would be I love eating at Cracker Barrel. When I lived in Argentina, uh, I would crave Cracker Barrel. And one of, the, one of the things that is a little bit unsettling, though, about eating at Cracker Barrel, I don't know if all restaurants have this, but some of the Cracker Barrels, they hang like old rustic farm equipment from the ceiling above their dining room, right? So you're sitting there eating Mama's French Toast breakfast, and there's like a rusty pitchfork hanging above your head, hanging by some dental floss. Who thought this was a good idea? So I think constantly about what's the worst thing that might happen in this situation. Well, I think that right now we are living in a worst case scenario kind of time. Where everybody, almost everybody, is gripped by this anxiety about what's going to happen tomorrow. Because it feels like the worst just keeps happening. We had a food drive at Smyrna Laverne campus that all of North Boulevard, all campuses participated in. And over the course of four days, spread out over two weeks, we gave food boxes to people. But we didn't just want to give them food boxes. We worked with the Rutherford County Schools to try to find vulnerable kids, uh, food insecure kids and their families to help with this food drive. But when we gave them the boxes, we would also offer to pray for them. And out of the hundred and so families who came to this drive, do you know what the number one prayer request was that we got over those two weeks? It was that we would pray for their anxiety. Mothers and fathers who were anxious about their kids going back to school, people with health concerns who were anxious about getting the virus. We had people who had recovered from the virus who had come to our, our uh, food drive and were worried about siblings and others who might catch it who had health difficulties. One of the ladies who came to our food drive, her name was Tequila. Tequila was the first lady to come. And Tequila wanted for us to pray for her anxiety. And she came back to the food drive every single day. And she would not leave, not until she got a bag of food, but until she had someone to pray for her. She would not leave the parking lot until she had been prayed for because she suffered with this terrible anxiety. Her hours have been cut back at work. She's got two little kids at home. She's a single mom. And she simply is worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. How can we face tomorrow with confidence when we simply don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next? I mean, it's maybe been exacerbated in the pandemic, but we've never been certain about tomorrow, right? Like if you've been living under the illusion that you can predict from one day to the next what's going to happen in your life, then I hope the pandemic has taken that sense of security away. We simply don't know. That's why as Christians, we live saying, God willing, we will do this or that tomorrow. Because the reality is, you don't know what's going to happen to your kids. You can't protect them from everything. You don't know what's going to happen to your marriage. You can't control the person you're married to. You don't know what's going to happen with the stock market. Is it going to keep rising? Is your retirement going to be there tomorrow? You don't know who's going to be president in six months. 
We don't know how long the virus is going to be around. You don't know the next time you're going to get sick. You don't know the next time you're going to get into your car. We simply don't know what's going to happen. We simply can't be certain in tomorrow. And so how can we possibly, as Christians, live with confidence from one day to the next? How does the resurrected Christ speak into the worry and to the anxiety that so many of us feel? I think the answer comes from John chapter 20. You see, in John chapter 20, we get an encounter with the resurrected Christ. What's been happening up to this point is that some of the women have gone to the tomb and they've discovered that the body of Jesus is gone. Some of the disciples have gone well as well and they've seen the empty tomb. And so now the disciples are huddled together in a house and they have locked the doors for fear of what might happen to them, thinking that if they crucified our leader, they may just crucify us as well. The anxiety must have been palpable and stifling. Where's Jesus? Why did he have to be crucified? What's going to happen to us now that his tomb is empty? And it's into this environment of extreme anxiety that the resurrected Christ walks. He steps into the locked room. Apparently there's a feature on his resurrected body that allows him to move through locked doors. He steps through the house. He stands in the middle of them. And this is what John tells us. His first words to the disciples are, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them his scars. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Why do the words of Jesus bring peace to the disciples? If I'm anxious about tomorrow, if I'm worried about what might happen to me tomorrow, then why does seeing the resurrected Christ's scars bring me peace? Because in fact, almost every single person in that room to whom Jesus brought words of peace, almost every single one of them would suffer because of the resurrected Jesus. Almost every single one of them would be martyred because this guy just showed up in their midst. So how can Jesus, how does he have the audacity to stand in their midst when they're not certain about tomorrow? And in fact, the only thing they can be certain about is that they will suffer. How can he bring peace into their situation? The answer is found in the palm of his scarred hands. Because you see what Jesus, I think, is saying as he stands among them and shows them the scars on his hands is that guess what? The worst thing that could happen happened and God was able to raise me from the dead. The world did their worst to me and God had the power to reverse the curse. The world threw their worst at Jesus and God had the power to bring healing to his wounds, which means the promise that we have in the resurrected Christ is not that he will remove all of your pain. The promise that we have is that he can redeem everything that we experience. That there is no wound so deep that he cannot heal. That there is no darkness so dark that he cannot bring light. That there is no grave so deep that he cannot bring that body out of the grave. The reason why we have peace in the scarred hands of the resurrected Christ is because no matter what happens, God can make all sad things untrue because of the resurrected Jesus. So finally, if we've been rescued from a meaningless story, 
and we've been rescued from our worry about tomorrow, then how does the resurrected Christ rescue us from our fear of death? We've had to talk a lot more about death in 2020 than probably any of us ever wanted. We've heard about death counts and death rates. Many of us have thought maybe at times that a simple decision like going to the grocery store or visiting our grandmother could be a decision between life and death. David said a couple weeks back, David Young, that he suspects that the pandemic has served as an accelerator for many of us. And I think he's right, at least for me. That the pandemic has not, has not served to maybe cause some of the demons that are in your heart, but it's rather accelerated processes that were going to happen eventually. That maybe relational conflicts that were going to happen eventually have come a lot sooner. That maybe dealing with some of the scars of your past that you've been trying to ignore, maybe some of those things have been coming up because of what's happened in 2020. Perhaps one of those demons for you has been that you have had to grapple with the certainty of your death. Have you ever stopped to really think about the fact that you one day are going to die? Have you wrestled with the reality that every single person that you love one day will have to die? How can we live as Christians when we know that there is a dark black hole waiting for all of us at the end of our life. How does the resurrected Christ speak into that fear and enable us to faith, face the certainty of our death? When I think about the fear that I have at times facing death, I think about the fear that I had as a child of water slides. You see, when I was a child, uh, my parents loved to take us to water parks and theme parks And so I don't remember exactly where this was, but I have a very distinct memory of being a child in my wet bathing suit, standing on top of what felt like a four-story platform in my bare feet upon the metal grate, staring into the belly of a giant plastic tube water slide. There was water rushing in it. This thing was so long, you could barely see where it was going to go. You could almost not even figure out where it splashed into the pool at the bottom. And I remember as a child looking into the belly of the beast and saying, I don't know that I can do this. It looks great from down there. It's not looking so good from up here. And what would happen as I looked into the belly of the beast is I would start to ask myself some questions out of fear. Like, where does this thing even go? What happens if I get stuck in the middle? Have we confirmed that anyone has made it through this thing before? Has this been tested, right? And what's going to be waiting for me on the other side? Well, inevitably, what would happen is that an older kid or maybe an adult would see my timidity and they would step forward from the line. They would say, excuse me, do you mind if, if I go first? And since I was raised to be polite, I would, of course, say yes. Go on ahead. And with complete confidence, boom, they would launch themselves into the slide. Well, as soon as I saw them go into the slide, I ran to the railing, right? And I'm looking down at the bottom to see, is he going to make it out the other side? And after a few tense moments, every single time, splash, he'd make it to the other side. And as soon as I knew that someone had made it, and as soon as I knew what was waiting for me 
on the other side. Oh, I had complete confidence to face the slide, knowing what was waiting for me on the other side. You see, the reason why you and I can have confidence when we face death is because Christ Jesus has faced death for us. And in his resurrection, he has made it to the other side. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15, that since death came through one man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, when we were baptized into Jesus, we already died. When we were baptized into Christ, like what just happened a few moments ago, we died with Christ. And because we have died with Christ, we have confidence that we will also be raised with him. That's how we overcome the fear of our death. But the resurrection has not only allowed us to overcome the fear of our death, it has also taken away its power. That in the resurrection, Christ has defeated death. He tells us this later in 1 Corinthians 15. That when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, that death has been swallowed up in victory. And then Paul proceeds to taunt death because the resurrection has removed its power. Where, O death, is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God that he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the resurrection, Christ has won our victory over death. And that means that you can live a meaningful story. It means that you can face tomorrow confidently. And it means that you can stare down the dark belly of the death that is waiting you at the end of your life, knowing that Christ is waiting for you on the other side. I have to conclude by sharing one last story. I can't preach 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about resurrection with all, without telling you uh, about the story of my mother. I have this Bible at my house and it's permanently open to 1 Corinthians 15. And the reason why it's open all the time to 1 Corinthians 15 is because 20 years ago, my mother passed away. This was her Bible. It was a Friday afternoon when my sister and myself were riding in the car in Smyrna, Tennessee, going back home from Walmart and McDonald's. We were driving on Eden Springs Road, and my brother was waiting for us at home. And I, I have to imagine that if you had a video camera inside that van, that burgundy van that my mom drove, we would have been the happiest kids alive. We had our Happy Meals, we had our happy families, and there was probably Blue's Clues waiting for us when we got home. We were kind of like night, certain that today was going to be a good day. But all of that changed, and our life completely changed, when in a second, my mom's heart would stop. She would slump down in her chair. We would careen across the highway, run over some trees that were waiting on the other side, and eventually crash into a tree that wouldn't budge. The paramedics arrived very quickly. While they could save her heart, they couldn't save her mind. And after living two and a half years in a coma, complete, completely brain dead, my mother passed away in 2000. 
But it wasn't until I was in college that I discovered we actually had the last words that my mother ever spoke recorded on tape. You see, my mother, as we were driving, was talking with my brother on the phone, on one of those old car phones that sat in between the driver's seat and the pilot seat. She was talking to my brother, trying to reassure him that everything was going to be okay, that we were on our way home. So my mother calls and my brother delays in picking up. And the way the old phone machines worked, it started to record as it went to voicemail. And so I have the words that my mom said to my brother before her heart stopped. As she said, are you worried? Are you worried? And my brother says, no. And at that moment, her heart stopped and our life stopped along with it. I thought a lot about my mother's words since I learned about this recording. Because as I think about that moment, if I could go back in time and talk to my dad, my brother, my sister, and me, if we knew what was about to happen, how could we not be worried? If we knew that our mother was about to be ripped from this world, how could we not be worried? If we knew that in the death of our mom, I would have a hole in my heart that is so hard to fill, how could we not be worried? Yet the more that I think about my mom's last words, I think about the scarred hands of the resurrected Christ. The reason why my mom's story is not a meaningless story, the reason why my story has been redeemed, the reason why your story can be redeemed. And the reason why this story is the story is because it's a complete rescue story that in the resurrected Christ, we have hope beyond the grave. That in the resurrected Christ, we have confidence to face tomorrow. Not because God will protect us from all bad things, not because you're not going to suffer in this life. Not because you're not going to experience pain. But because even the deepest wounds that we can experience in this world, God can heal them. There is nothing in all of creation that God cannot redeem. And so my invitation to you this morning is that you would place your worries in the scarred but resurrected hands of Jesus. That you would place your fears about your kids and about your marriage and about this economy, and about what's going to happen tomorrow, that you would place them in the hands of the resurrected Christ. That you would put your life in the hands of the resurrected Christ. Because only in Christ is your future secure. So I have to ask you as we end, are you worried? Let the resurrected Christ take your worry away. Let's sing our song.